we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And today we're going to talk about marriage fraud. This is something that everybody understands happens. There's even been a cinematic treatment, at least one of them, the movie called Green Card with Gerard Depardieu about green card marriage fraud. Basically, Maybe there's other movies about that. If so, write in and let me know. But today we're going to talk to CIS fellow David North about marriage fraud. He's written on this pretty extensively. There are some specific parts of it that he's looked at in some detail, but it is a broad issue precisely because it is an unlimited avenue for immigration to the United States. There's no numerical cap for the immigration of people who marry U.S. citizens. And there is a cap, but there's a whole other category for people who marry green card holders. So it is, it's an important way of getting in. There are all kinds of opportunities for fraud. You know, the Immigration Service does, in fact, try to police it, but it's difficult to do, and they probably don't police it as robustly and energetically as they should. And so David's going to talk to us about the whole problem, but then also there are kind of different pieces, subgroups, as it were, of marriage fraud, and we're going to explore some of that. So David, thanks for coming on. And if you could tell us what's the sort of overall, what's the scope of the issue of marriage-based immigration and then the fraud within that? Okay. Thanks, Mark. One out of every six new legal immigrants in 2022, that was 174,000 of them out of the million or so that we receive every year, are here because they're married either to a U.S. citizen or um, less frequently to a green card holder. This is a huge chunk of legal immigration. Mm -hmm. And as you say, there's frequent indications of fraudulence in, in, in many of them. Not most, but in many. This being the immigration business, as you know, Mark, is complicated. Right. So typically there are four different kinds of marriage-related green card-creating immigration fraud. All are equally illegal and all inflate the, the migrant population. They're in order, which I've, this is my order that I've set up, from the least harmful to the most harmful. Meaning to the body politic kind of harmful, a broader American interest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. E exactly. And the first and the most rare type, I call them type one, are marriages of convenience in which a citizen takes pity on an alien and no money changes hands. I was at a cocktail party in Denver with my stepdaughter, who was a lawyer, about 20 years ago, ran into a young lady who learned that I was involved in immigration, and she told me her story. She's a lawyer. I think she's a lesbian as well. She knew somebody who was suffering from AIDS, which is much more of a 
problem then than it is now. Right. Who was a foreigner in the United States? He was an illegal alien ah. in the United States. So she was thinking about marrying him, not because of anything except to keep him in the United States and in the United States health system. Now, that doesn't happen very often. Right. The second kind of illegal marriages are ones in which the alien pays the citizen money. Mm -hmm. That makes both the alien and the citizen criminals, and we don't hear about that very often because as long as the payments go on or as long as the payment was acceptable, nobody complains, and, and it just goes ahead and, and, and happens. But that kind of thing does sometimes break into the news, doesn't it? I remember, I mean, I can't put my finger on the story now, but, you know, somebody welshes on the payment or the citizen wants more money or something, and then the whole thing kind of unravels sometimes, blows up right. the news. Right. That, that does happen. And, and further, this tends to be a, a, a group thing. Right. This is not just, as in the first case, very individual situation. So there are marriage fraud rings that do this, and sometimes those things fall apart, and the government finds out about them, and they prosecute sometimes 12 different people, all of whom are of the same nationality. Right. So that's type two. Okay. Type three, which is even more upsetting, are cases in which the alien misleads the citizen for, for the statutory period of two years, then breaks up the marriage. And often this creates not only a broken heart for the citizen, but alimony payments for the citizen, uh, sometimes for 10, 12, 20 years. So this is where the U.S. citizen thought it was an actual marriage and right. the alien did not. And then is, and so the two-year period you're talking about, if you could explain why it's two years. Well, I, I, you happen to be talking to the only expert witness at the only hearing of the United States Senate <laughs> <laughs> dealt with this issue about 25, 30 years ago, yeah. before Alan Simpson, who we all miss. Anyway, um, Mr. Simpson decided that it would be a good idea to at least limit the number of times that you could do this kind of stunt, and so this got to be law. Once a two-year conditional green card was given to you, right. then it became a permanent green card. So nobody could beat the system more than once every two years. So they're kind of, in a sense, you're sort of on parole, as it were, not in the immigration parole, but on probation, sort of, for two years exactly. when you get a temporary green card, basically, and then you get the permanent one if the couple actually sticks it out for two years, basically. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. And so, and so what you're saying, this is your, in your typology, the third category would be... This is the third kind. Right. And... Um, Obviously, this is the citizen in this case is a victim, and the victim not only is he has the heartbreak of the the breakup of the marriage, but in many cases also has to pay alimony. The fourth kind is a variation of that, but it happens before the two years are up, and the alien in this case self petitions for the green card. And these are the only ones for, for which we have anything like data. Right. Of the 5,817 self-petitioning spouses in fiscal 2022, many perhaps most were fraudulent. Now, just to make clear here, these are instances where the non-U.S. citizen married a U.S. citizen wants to get out of it before the two years, so couldn't even wait two years. 
at which right. point automatically they'd get a regular permanent green card and could go their own way and divorce or do whatever they want to. So before the two-year probationary period is up, they decide they want out, and there's a way for them to do that. Yeah, there's a way for them to do that. And that is probably the worst of these uh, these situations. So let's, let's turn to who, who's involved in this. Well, just before we get to that, in a sense, it seems like there might be a fifth category, and I don't know how often this happens, but it must happen sometimes, where the alien is the one who's kind of either fooled or victimized. In other words, you know, some American, I mean, I'm, let's say it's most of the time it's going to be a guy who basically is looking for someone, you know, to wash the dishes and service him in the bedroom, as it were. And that's not what the foreign woman had in mind. You know, it was an exploitative kind of relationship. Uh, it seems like that would, it's not so much fraud in the sense that they would actually be living together, but th- that is a kind of exploitation of this part of immigration. Yeah, citizens are not always the victims of these situations. And, and yeah, there, there are uh, males who apparently can't find somebody to, to marry them in this country, and so they go to uh, Russian marriage brokers, for instance, right? and they bring, bring somebody in and exploit them. And that's another phenomenon, and uh, it's unfortunate, and um, it happens. Right. In a sense, it's, you know, Guys don't have much going for them except their passport, <laughs> you know, so... Um, yeah, right, yeah. right. It turns out to be a real asset under these circumstances, which you wouldn't think about. Interestingly, though, I mean, to sort of sort of get back on the subject here, that wouldn't necessarily be fraudulent. In other words, it could be exploitative, but it's not as though laws are necessarily being broken, whereas in the various categories you've described, somebody is breaking the law. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Okay, so who are some of the people, uh, you know, who get involved in this kind of thing? Well, this is kind of an unequal situation in many cases. In many cases, the uh, alien is younger and better looking mm-hmm. than, than the citizen. In many cases, the alien is better educated than the citizen. And, and we find that many of the citizen victims are... Um, uh, essentially disadvantaged persons in our society, one one way and another. Right. We sometimes get letters from them that are from the citizen. We never we never hear from the aliens, needless to say. Mm-hmm. But we at the Center for Immigration Studies get letters from the citizens that are illiterate, to put, put it mildly, come through in broken English. Often the victim is a green card holder who has just arrived in the United States fairly recently, but uh, they too can... Uh, and bring in foreign spouses, and sometimes it doesn't work out very well. Right. Another phenomenon we keep running into is that of arranged marriages. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because just to, before you get off on that, my mother's mother or my mother's parents essentially had an arranged marriage. I mean, it was it wasn't fraudulent; it was a real marriage. But you know, my uh, grandmother was in. Marseille trying to get to the United States, and my grandfather's first wife had passed away, I think maybe in childbirth. So basically, he needed, you know, he needed a wife. I mean, this is the 1920s, you know. So um, they both went to Havana, got married, registered with the consulate there, and then came in, and it was an arranged marriage. There's got to still be a good deal of that happening, especially 
with people from South Asia and the Middle East, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, Pakistan is a, is a pretty good example of this, and so is India. Right. And so, so there is that tradition, as you appropriately say, and when that gets mixed in with uh, the immigration law, it, it leads sometimes to uh, beneficial consequences, as in the case of your grandparents, and in other cases to um, disrupted and, and fraudulent marriage. So right. that's just that's a piece of the background. That's right. And so this is the kind of thing that's, I mean, you mentioned that there are marriage fraud rings, and that's the kind of thing that law enforcement likes to investigate because you get to, you get more bang for your buck. It's, it's, it takes work, but you eliminate a significant size problem. But much of marriage fraud is, you know, one off. And so it's got to be extremely labor intensive for the immigration service to try to deal with it, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And the Immigration Service, though it won't say so, USCIS, doesn't really want to play the role of divorce court. Now, divorce courts are um, places where, you know, he said, she said, conflicts take place all the time. And they don't, they, they don't want to get involved in that. But if, as you say, on occasion, they're, they're much more likely, and it's probably more cost-efficient and cost-effective to go after the rings. And, and the rings typically operate within a single nationality, right. single ethnic group. And there are Filipino ones, and there's some Mexican ones. And it turns out sometimes that there are half a dozen people involved, not as the husband or wife, but, but as the, the middle people and recruiters and so forth. Interesting, and, interesting. And so you have, a, you have one of these cases, and it takes years to develop them. And then they have a dozen or so co-conspirators who played a role of one kind or another in this. And so they, they are much more likely to be broken up. And the cash type is much more um, likely to be as the subject of uh, USCIS concern and, and thereafter um, court cases. Right. Although the interesting thing is, I mean, there were a couple of incidents a few years ago. I remember there was some state legislator somewhere who uh, was oh, yeah. exposed as having done that. My question in these things is always, okay, well, what happened to the alien, former alien, who used marriage fraud to get a green card? Has that person been removed from the country? And, you know, I I never hear follow-up on it, and my suspicion is they, you know, the Immigration Service just doesn't pursue it. That's right. I mean, if you have the cash for a marriage situation, you've got two criminals. Right. And you've got evidence. I mean, you've got hard evidence. Uh, you got the, yeah, and they're they're bank deposits, right, right, and then and, and all that sort of thing. Typically, the citizen is not charged with anything. The right. individual citizen. Now, if the citizen is a is a broker, and then he's likely to be in trouble. Or the citizen just simply is the is the person who's who's receiving the bribe. He is unlikely to get in trouble. It's worrisome because the government should be spending more more time and energy on this sort of thing, and it isn't. Right. And so we're, we're, we're left with more people than we, um, than we really need, and the extra people are typically criminals. Now, that's, that's a hell of a way to run an immigration system. One of the, I got a real sense of how, in a sense, not subjective, I guess, is not the right word, but how much in individual cases, uh, ferreting out fraudulent marriages is part 
science, I guess. In other words, we are tracking patterns of fraud or what have you. But for adjudicators, for individual USCIS folks, there's a certain art to it as well. I remember years ago, I actually got to sit in on a uh, green card marriage interview. And it was this is when the INS was still around. The couple's lawyer agreed to it. I don't even remember. I don't think I ever even knew their names. And it didn't matter. I just sat and listened. And it was very interesting. The couple, the woman was the U.S. citizen. She was herself a naturalized immigrant, naturalized citizen from Mexico, but had come as a child. Her husband, though, was Turkish and of Muslim background, but they got married in a church. And so even though they were similar age, similar socioeconomic background, there was that potential red flag. The thing that struck me as sort of the, uh, the art, the um, a kind of thing that you learn as an adjudicator just from experience is because I talked to the adjudicator afterwards. He said there was one incident that happened during the interview that convinced him it was legit and he approved it. And that was that he asked, and this wasn't planned, he asked the, the wife, the U.S. citizen, for some piece of paper, you know, some form or something, and she had it in her bag that was on the floor. So she bent down to get it, but whacked her head against the back of the adjudicator's computer monitor. This was the old days where you had those giant monitors, you know, not the flat screens. And so the adjudicator had been doing this long enough that he immediately looked at the husband's reaction. And, you know, the, his point was, if he was kind of blasé or indifferent, you know, clearly it would, it, there would be a strong indication that it was phony. But instead, the husband immediately focused all his attention on whether his wife was okay. And she was fine. It wasn't, but, but the point is, that was his reaction. And the adjudicator said, yeah, as soon as I saw that, I knew it was real. And they were, they were you know, they were approved. Oh, oh, that's a nice story. But how do you do that on a mass scale? You know, that's the problem. How do you scale that? One of the things that either used to be done or may still be done is called the parallel interview. Right. And you, the USCIS is, is concerned about this marriage, and so they set it up so that one adjudicator is talking to the woman in the separate room, and another adjudicator is talking to the guy in another room, and they ask them parallel questions. Right. What toothpaste does your husband use kind of stuff, right? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Right. What yeah. did you have for breakfast? Yeah. And uh, are there curtains on the um, dining room windows uh, right. and uh, so forth? So that's effective when it's done. But that's, that's again, very labor-intensive. You know what I mean? Oh, you yeah. Know, I mean, look at you. Here's this marriage. You've got two staff members of USCIS working in separate rooms to find out if they get parallel answers. Right. But this is, a, as you say, a very expensive sort of thing for the government, and the government, government doesn't spend as much time and money on it as it should. So what kind of things can be done within the realm of the possible to limit? And there's always going to be marriage fraud, but how do we, you know, what realistic steps can Homeland Security take to minimize it? Well, there, there, there are several things, over and above, you know, spending more time and energy on it. There are parts of something called the Violence Against Women Act, that's VAWA, V-A-W-A, mm -hmm. that loads the dice in the favor of the alien applicant. The uh, citizen might say, if they got this far with the uh, USCIS, uh, hey, this guy committed fraud. Well, that doesn't count, apparently. So the, the law itself is loaded 
in favor of the alien, which is surprising. And this is, just to explain, this is your fourth category, as it were, of marriage fraud when the alien spouse, you know, can't be bothered to wait for two years to get the permanent card that will allege abuse under this Violence Against Women Act, and that starts this process you're talking about. Exactly, and sometimes the abuser is a 120-pound woman and the guy is a 300-pound football player. Right. And um, a lot of those abuse charges are uh, are obviously phony. But the violence does load, load the dice as far as, as what USCIS can, can do about it. Mm-hmm. Another thing that our government should do, which the Canadians do, Canadians are often good at these things, mm-hmm. is develop an education program against these practices. If you're a Canadian and you want to marry an alien, you must sit through a video which warns about the pitfalls of such marriages. We haven't done anything like that. Yeah, that actually, I mean, that's one of those low-cost, high-impact type of things. You know, in other words, what are the consequences? First of all, what are the legal consequences? In other words, you could get in trouble and you have these little, I mean, I can envision it now. You have little uh, vignettes, you know what I mean? Here's Bob and he, uh, whatever, took money for this and now he's in jail or whatever. It reminds me of the when I was in second grade, we had a railroad that went through our town right by the houses and everything. And so all the kids had to watch video uh, movies. You know, this wasn't videos, little eight millimeter movies or whatever it was from the old days about train safety. In other words, don't end up like Bob in the hospital with his legs cut off. You know, this kind of thing. It seems like an obvious thing that wouldn't cost very much and probably would dissuade some share of people from either engaging in where the citizen is actually taking money, scare them off, or kind of raise concerns where they go and ask their prospective alien spouse, hey, you know, what is the story? Are you just doing this for a green card? That kind of thing. Raise suspicions in people's minds. Seems like it would be pretty effective. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. And and I I love the story that you, you, you told, which I've never heard before. And another thing totally different sort of thing is, and uh, I'm a researcher and maybe I'm a little biased about this, but I think the government should run a uh, study of these failed marriages to see what red flags show up. I mean, there are some obvious ones, age, for instance, if a 22-year-old guy is marrying a 60-year-old woman and the woman is is a citizen, uh, something looks phony there. Sure. You might figure out on, even on a numerical basis that the number of years of age difference. I don't know how you do this, but the attractability, the attractiveness index, the economic status of both of them. Educational status, maybe, you know. Educational status. Like an alien with a graduate degree who's marrying, you know, someone who's never graduated high school. Exactly. That's suspicious. Mm -hmm. You might find some some useful red flags in in that process and then, then drill your officers and in what to look for. Yeah, the interesting thing is you would think they'd do this, and presumably there are adjudicators who have a kind of general sense of what red flags would be, you know, big differences in religion, economics, education, age, that kind of thing. But, you know, actually quantifying that and giving some solid parameters, unfortunately, that kind of research is only something DHS can do because you would have to go into individual case files Oh, and that's yeah. not something that we could, even with Freedom of Information Act requests, that outsiders would ever be able to get, unfortunately. 
Yeah, you're exactly right about that. I've got one other thing that uh, I would advocate. There are a whole series of, I don't know, 73, 85 different kinds of theses right. that are offered, and you typically with, with letters and, and numbers. One of them I think should be abolished, and that's the K visa. The K visa comes into play only when none of the following is true. Both the alien and the citizen are now in this country where they can marry. That's not, not, not the case. Both alien and citizen are together overseas where they also can marry. Again, this is not the case. The alien can get a visa as a tourist or a student or something to come to the United States. Or the citizen can travel overseas for the wedding. Now, if none of those conditions apply, then then there is the K visa. Which is a fiancé visa is what it's often called. Fiancé visas, right. right. And my sense is if, if the couple aren't that enthusiastic about marriage that they can cope with one of the four conditions I just talked about, then maybe we shouldn't, um, we, we won't ever bar anybody from marrying somebody. We still have bar the alien from getting a visa, a K visa. Right, yeah. The only rationale I can think of is, you know, you want to have a church wedding, say, you know, in the United States. But even there, you get married, you know, civilly overseas, if that's what it takes. And then the person is your spouse. And then you can have a ceremony in the United States. In other words, it seems to me there's there's sort of one situation that people legitimately might want a K visa. But again, it doesn't seem to me to be worth it because it is so widely used for fraudulent purposes. Exactly, exactly. But they keep issuing them, and, and then there are the derivative ones. That supposing the, the alien has a child, then the child is a K-2, and mama is a K-1. Right, right. So I think we should get along without that, that visa. Do we have any sense of... Um Again, this is hard to get data on because you have to be inside the government, but how pervasive fraud is within that particular fiancé visa program? And the answer is no, and there probably should be, but I, I, don't, know, I don't know of any uh, data on that subject. Yeah, and again, this is something DHS would have to do because there's no way outsiders would get ac- could get access to that data. Yeah, exactly. Right. Anyway, my my sense is that Uncle Sam should stop playing its current role of a stupid Cupid and um, crack down on some of these things. Okay, good. Stupid Cupid would be a great name for a band, maybe. In fact, it may already be a name for a band. Thank you, David. This has been David North, who's a fellow with CIS. We've been talking about marriage fraud. We'll have links to a couple of posts he's written. He's written extensively on this issue of marriage fraud. We'll post links to a couple of recent postings about the subject. And David, uh, keep an eye on this topic and something uh, new develops. We'll want to have you back to talk about it. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. So that's it for this episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, your host. Please rate and review us if your podcast platform allows that. And if it's just easier, email us at center at cis.org if you have complaints or compliments or suggestions for future shows. So until the next show, this is Mark Rikorian signing off. <laughs>